Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, July the 24th, 2019. This is episode 2477 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Wednesday, so it's time for interview day. Today we have a dude coming on named Tad Fuller. He's a 30-year-old mechanical contractor, an HVAC professional electrician, and family man with two kids and a wife. That's really not what we're having him on to talk about. Uh, he has started a company called Electric Farms. He now offers turnkey solutions for farmers looking to obtain entry into the market. His primary offering is a passive solar greenhouse with aquaponic deep water culture systems as a growing solution with ROIs, three to five years depending on the life of choice and the produce to be grown. He's also a musician with a newly released single, a Maroon 5 cover titled Lettuce Like This. He's a good dude. We're going to have him on to talk about a bunch of stuff. We're going to talk about his goals for his business. Uh, we're going to talk about the vegetables you can grow in aquaponic systems. Uh, we're going to talk about the hemp industry and where and if aquaponics plays a role in that. We're going to talk about youth struggling to enter today's workforce, and maybe agriculture can be a solution for some of them anyway. We're going to talk about growing hemp both in and outdoors. And we're going to find out why he wrote a dadgone song called Lettuce Like This based on Maroon 5 with kind of like, I don't know, like kind of a sultry soul thing going on and even some white boy rap. Why would somebody do something? Well, he'll tell us. We'll, we'll ask him all about that. And we're going to have a really good uh, time today. And we're going to learn some really cool stuff at the same time. Before we do, let's go ahead and rem uh, remind you guys about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Western Botanicals. You know, yesterday I did a whole show on herbs. Uh, herbs are one of the things in the world that I am both fascinated by and passionate about because I know how powerful they are, both as foods and medicine. Uh, Western Botanicals is a company I love working with because they have a goal bigger than themselves. That's something pretty big with me as well. I like people and companies that do things like that. And their goal is to put a herbalist in every home in America. That's their stated goal. That's their company mission. Not become the biggest seller of herbs in you know the western United States. No. Put an herbalist in every home in America. That's a pretty noble goal. Everything you find at Western Botanicals is either organically grown or wildcrafted, and they have real people that really care about you that will answer the phone and help you in Utah, not in Dude Delhi. Check them out, westernbotanicals.com, where if it's legal and herbal, you'll find it in the United, you'll find it there. Um, and uh, just a reminder, real quick, they have a really cool program, their premium membership program. It's 50 bucks a year. And it gives you 25% off everything they sell, so it pays for itself. But guess what? If you're an MSB member, it's free. That's right. You can learn more in the benefits section of the MSB. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. Gun, no ammo, expensive club. That's how it works. Guns without ammo cannot do the thing that guns are meant to do. You need ammo for practicing. You need ammo to put food on the table, and you need ammo to defend yourself, your property, and your family. It does all. You give a good gun ammo, it can do all those things. You take away the ammo, it can't do anything. So we need to stock up on ammo. Whenever there's concerns about gun grabbing, what always dries up first? The guns or the ammo? The ammo does. Right now, ammo is plentiful and it's affordable. It's a good time to stock up. A place to do it is bulkammo.com. 
where they will ship your ammo to you so fast, you'll be like, what, what, why is the, the mailed guy here? What is he doing? And there's your ammo at your door. It's awesome. Why would you even go to the store? Well, you can get great pricing and lightning-fast shipping from, West, uh, from Bulk Ammo. And remember, they do a discount for MSB members you can find in the, discount, or the, the benefits section of your MSB. If you're not an MSB member, let me just throw it out right now. That is a great thing for you to get involved with. This is how it works. You join my premium membership program. It costs 50 bucks a year. It comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. You go into your benefits section about once or twice a month even and just look at everything that's in there and remind yourself of what's there. As things come up that you need that you're going to buy, then you go ahead and you buy that stuff with a discount. By the end of the year, you do the math and your membership will more than pay for itself. And, and that's how I designed that program to be, something that paid for itself. I didn't want to be like NPR begging for money, okay, um, or, or public radio or public broadcasting. And like, you know, without viewers like you, we wouldn't be able to produce. I don't want to be that. I want something of value that I can offer in a value-for-value exchange. That's what MSB is. If you do want to look at it as, you know, you love the show and you want to support it, it's 18 cents an episode. But if you, I really encourage you to use the discounts. I hear from people all the time, I don't even worry about the discounts. I just, you know, like, like this show and I want to support it. That's fine. I appreciate it. But, man, I'm telling you, look at the gun adapters discount. If you use CBD products, look at the CBD product discounts. I mean, those alone could pay for a, a year easy. Uh, check it out. We get discounts on coffee. Everybody drinks coffee. It's the number one drug in the world. Uh, we got discounts on two great coffee roasters. Check it out. Use the discounts and support the show all at the same time. All right. With that, let's go ahead and dig into uh, this topic we're going to talk about today, which is kind of a varied topic. We're going to talk about farming as a whole, building a business, passive solar greenhouses, aquaponics, the youth entering the workforce problem that we have. We have a, a, a booming economy, but yet young people still have a hard time finding jobs uh, that start off with anything really meaningful as far as income or purpose. Uh, we're here to talk about all of that with our special guest, Tad Fuller. With that, hey, Tad, man, welcome to... The Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Hey, man. Glad to have you on today. We're going to be talking about, honestly, a bunch of stuff. The food industry, a little bit about music, uh, aquaponics, hemp. But before we dig into all this and, and talk about your new venture here, Electric Farms, who the heck is Tad, man? Take us back to, like, you're spacing out in study hall in high school or something, and how, do you, how, you know, how does that lead you to what you're doing now? Perfect. All right. So, yeah, Tad in high school. So, Tad was brought up to um, a father who has a, a ba basically a family-owned uh, heat and air company. My dad, he brought me up into heat and air. So, back in high school, I can remember that when summer came along, I was basically underneath a house in a crawl space or in an attic uh, helping the crew, the sheet metal crew. So, I got a really good understanding of uh, sheet metal work, and I got a really good example of uh, just hard work displayed before me because, um, you know, sheet metal work isn't easy. Not everybody likes to be in a crawl space or an attic, um, but that's the example that I got early on, and it was able to instill a good work ethic, and I think that's something that's helped me to get where I am. But in high school, man, when I wasn't working, when I was in school, I was – Uh, basically, uh, just really being a social bug and, and, and just, you know, laughing and, and being not really serious at all, uh, not paying attention usually. So the school wasn't for me. I was just so, so much more hands-on. And now today, I mean, my, my father's 56 years old. He comes to work. He's there at 430. He's, he's basically got so much done before I even get there. And it's just a good example to me. So that's, that's where I was back in high school. 
Awesome, man. So that eventually led to electric farms, right? I mean, you decided to do something on your own with electric Absolutely. farms. I'm sure, I'm sure your background was helpful in some of the stuff you're doing. But, you know, what is electric farms and, and what are your goals for it? So Electric Farms is a collaboration between me and another young entrepreneur, Garrett Todd. Uh, Garrett Todd is uh, 33 years old. I am 30 years old. And um, I've been doing heat and air for uh, about uh, 12, 13 years uh, full time. And um, basically, Electric Farms is a collaboration between him, an aquaponic guru, a background with an um, ag degree, and then me, mechanical contractor, um, now would it, we've been able to add a couple other people onto our team which have a different skill set. Uh, one is uh, a passion for social media, and then um, the other half is, is hard work, determination, building management skills. And uh, together we're, we're able to offer a few different um, uh, things, basically. Uh, but we're, we're just a collaboration of people that have a, a certain passionate goal uh, for um, just trying to create more sustainable uh, food production areas, uh, you know, whether it be with farmers, um, hobbyists, um, you know, setting some up beside a, a grocery store or distributor. Um, but that, that's what Electric Farms is. It's, it was first an idea. It was a con. Um, now it's ability to offer turnkey solutions for farmers uh, to create businesses with not only um, – producing healthy uh, benefits for communities, but also a good ROI and then, you know, a good investment for a farmer. So, yeah. Awesome, man. So um, you do a lot with aquaponics. Let's talk about, like, what exactly can you grow with aquaponics? How many types of vegetables can you grow? And I guess, I mean, I know the answer is in some ways everything, but maybe, like, what should you, uh -huh. you know? <laughs> Okay, so that's a great question, and I would say the question would be, what can you not grow in aquaponics? Like, uh, so there's over 300 different types of vegetables that have been grown in aquaponics, and de depending on the different type of aquaponic system design is really where the variety of crop, um, you know, depends upon. So, you know, if you look at deep water culture where you have a trough and you have a polystyrene board sitting on top of the surface of the water, then you're going to look at a smaller uh, variety of crop because you can't have a top-heavy crop like tomatoes, which could weigh that uh, polystyrene raft down. And I've seen you do some wicking beds, and I love that. In fact, I didn't even know anything about wicking beds until uh, John Willis turned me on to you, and then I was like, what? Wicking beds? Awesome. It's like media bed. And then you get the benefit of – it's just such a good combination. But, yeah, media bed systems, I've seen people grow banana trees in aquaponics. So you've got different system setups uh, that are able to uh, accommodate the certain crop that you're wanting to try to cater your system to. So that's what's great about aquaponics. You know, what I would add to that is I think that, like, you just because you can do something doesn't always mean that you should. So can you grow corn with aquaponics? Exactly. Yes. Should you? Probably not. Yes. The ROI no. for the effort and the space you give up. <laughs> and I think that's like you do a lot with deep water culture. And the reason that's so popular on a commercial level is it's fast turnover, high profit. Mm -hmm. Right? So, I mean, that's that's what it excels oh. at to me is leaf crops. The, the, the amount you can produce as fast as you can produce and the quality is, is amazing to me. Absolutely. You're absolutely right, man. Exactly. It's good for commercial system, high turnover. Usually a, a typical system, uh, you're going to have 100 pounds of fish 
and a thousand uh, heads of crop. And that's, you know, like thousand square foot scale. Then you just, you know, go from there. Well, and with a, a, a situation like that, people I don't think realize is once you, you get into kind of a rotation on your harvest and replanting, you can basically have a continuous harvest fresh vegetable to market going on. One guy, Richard Hastings, he's been on the show a couple times out in East Texas. That's what he does. He sells through several markets in the Dallas area. He's about two hours east, so you know once a week he's delivering product. But he's shipping product, if you want to call it, delivering product is probably a better way to put it, 52 weeks a year, right? I mean, like, it's mm -hmm. a continuous That's where awesome. a lot of farms, you know, you plant, you wait, you harvest, you sell. Mm -hmm. And then you got to wait for spring, or you put That's it in exactly fall, right? Exactly right. right? Where with aquaponics, when you look at it from a standpoint of commercial production, you even out your cash flow throughout the year, and you can do it in a lot smaller area like you were just alluding to. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You've got a uh, you've got more cycles. You see, you have that one cycle where it's traditional outdoor dirt gardening, and then if you you bring it inside, you acclimate, you, you provide the artificial lighting, or you do passive solar where you have the benefit of both the sun and artificial lighting. Then you know, for a particular lettuce head, for instance, I've got a thousand heads in that in that deep water culture aquaponic system, and I go in there and I you say I harvest all of them right there. The next week they're going to be back. I come back in, I trim the the, the lettuce heads back off. I mean, if that's what your end consumer will like. If not, then they some of them, they want the whole entire plant, sure, roots and sure. all. But it just depends on how you're selling that product. But, yeah. So one of the big things that's hit agriculture in the U.S. in the last couple of years is hemp. And we, we went from a standpoint of where you couldn't even think about it. It wasn't a thing. They were doing it in Canada. And, and so people in, like, North Dakota were just, like, looking across the border at giant fields of hemp up there, and they couldn't grow it. A really great money crop. Yeah. And now it's, you know, the, the mm -hmm. federal prohibition on, we're talking uh, rope, not dope, is the way they say it at this point. At the same time, mm -hmm. there's been a lot of decriminalization and legalization of marijuana at the state level here and there. But sticking with hemp for uh, a bit, with this whole new world opening up, how do you think the hemp industry is going to affect farmers in America? I think that it's going to provide them with a really good alternative source um, for their their production needs. I think that it's going to really be able to boost their revenue, increase their wealth, and I think that it's one of those things that could come in and make a real difference in their lives. Uh, just because of the diversity, I mean, you don't have to. There's so many different things that this plant can be used for, whether it's the seeds to make your your oils, your lotions, your nutritional food supplement, or whether it's the stalks and the leaves and the stems for the paper or the plastic, or it's the, the buds for the more of the oil concentration and those medicinal needs. Uh, there's already been a ton of research in the last 20 years uh, that points to this crop for a uh, good alternative for the opiate crisis. So that's just one um, aspect of hemp and what it's able to offer um, but I could go on forever about just – but the revenue is the biggest thing, really. I mean, you look at aquaponics and selling a commercial system. Let's just base it off a 1,000 square foot. I can get you an ROI in less than three to five years doing tomatoes or lettuce. But when you look at hemp and the figures, hmm. the ROI is less than a year. And if somebody told me I could start a business and, hey, Tad, you're going to get your money back in the first year or the first two or three yields because I can get five to six yields a year with going inside, then I would be all for it. And for an investment, and for an, in, an investor standpoint, 
and providing an, an investor portfolio or a document, it just looks amazing. So, yeah. So what are your thoughts on this? This is one of the things I've been great. Yeah, I, hold on now. One of my concerns is that more and more people obviously see the opportunity there. And you can end up a lot of times with any commodity, but especially a, a rapidly ramped up uh, agricultural commodity in a cycle of boom, glut, bust. So if everybody that would be growing tomatoes and lettuce says, hey, huh, there's more money over here, do we, do we have a potential at some point for supply to exceed demand and kind of crash that market? Or do you think that specifically with the medicinal CBD applications, et cetera, there's so much left to be done and worked out that maybe even if that is a thing eventually, it's, it's fairly far off? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it is a far off. I mean, the diversity of the crop is one uh, way that you look at it and go, you know, it can be used in so many different ways. But if everybody's growing for the same, you know, that same commodity, then um, it's still not going to be oversaturated, though, because you look at the imports that have been coming sure. in. You look at that. We're just cutting those out. So if I – but then again, you look at, you know, hey, Tennessee farmers are making – We're legal now, but, but there's brokers from Colorado and Oregon and California that are coming in, and they're taking a 100 farmers, and they're buying all that crop. Why? Because they're already out. So I, I can look at other states as an example of what's going to happen in the market and if it could be oversaturated or not, and then I can also look at diversity. But here's Tennessee for an example. Um, when the Farm Bill was passed 2018, there's only 300 prior applicants that year. Now there's over 3,000. But if you take into consideration, only 50% of those are going to be using that license. And then of those, how many are really going to have a crop at the end of the harvest? I mean, there's going to be probably, what, 20% or less. And that's what I would definitely, I would guarantee that prediction. So what do you think on, like, because we're talking about two different things here. We're talking about field farming and, you know, aquaponics or hydroponics or just just call it greenhouse growing. Um, with hemp, I mean, with, with, with cannabis, in a lot of situations, and, and really hemp and cannabis are two dogs from the same litter, kind of. But when we talk about mm -hmm. cannabis that's used for um, recreational drug use or the stuff that's regulated differently, right? Um, in that situation, it's almost exclusively grown indoors for a variety of reasons. With hemp, yes. we have it being both grown inside and outside. I think a lot has to do with what are we growing it for. If we're growing it for fiber, just quantity alone. But if we're trying to grow really high-quality um, hemp for CBD-type products, you know, we're going to maybe move more toward the inside. So what are your thoughts on growing hemp outside versus inside one way or the other? Is it... Is it not a cut and dry, you should do this? Does it depend on the application, the crop, the variety, what have you? So if you look at the price of biomass, right now the average is $35 to $48 in the United States. So you would want to grow in great quantity, and you could only do oh, it I outdoors. Want, I want to hold you there for just a second because I didn't get that, so I know people did. $38 to $48 for biomass, is that like per bushel? What is, what is that? Per pound. Per pound, okay. All right, go ahead. Yes, that is per That is per pound. And if you look at that, compared to uh, producing that hemp for the flour, that the flour price per pound is for anywhere from $300 to $600 per pound. Wow. So you would definitely have the capability to grow indoors 
and kind of match or exceed the revenue from the outdoor production. Um, growing outdoors, I think it is a bad idea in general. I think it's a bad idea because um, we have a lot of different pests I've already seen that have been able to tear up our crops in several of our fields. And I've got eight different fields, usually one to two acre uh, per location, and we put about 1,000 per acre. So I've got roughly around 2,000 plants in eight different locations, and I see that thrips, spider mites, and a few of these pests, and spider mites being one of the worst to get rid of. You know, we, we have to do predatory bugs, and, I mean, you're having to do trap crops, and just there's so many different risks that are associated with growing outdoors. I believe that especially when it comes to recreational, everything's going to move to indoors. I think next year um, a lot of these farmers that are growing outdoors are not going to be growing outdoors because of all the risks that they have to mitigate, which is security risk, pest control, and um, that's just to name a few. So well, I didn't even think of secu security. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to imagine, especially even if you're growing a CBD-type uh, hemp, that there's probably a lot of idiots that have no idea what it is, and they would just grab it to grab it. Plus, even even with what it is, it's a very high dollar per pound uh, crop, so the security as well. Now, on the, the insect pest, so this is where I'm starting to see a place that maybe the advocates oversold something because, you know, we've always been told that, you know, we need to legalize hemp because you basically don't have to fertilize it, 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 it grows really fast, nothing eats it, nothing ruins it. So you're saying that's not, not really the case, and I want to be clear as well, like, okay, so is it really bad in affecting the biomass portion of the crop, or is it that these pests are more of a problem for the flower portion of the crop? Because, again, are we growing for paper and both. rope? Or are, okay, it's both, okay? So it is both, a... Both, absolutely both. Huh. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's definitely both, and... uh You've got to look at mold, too. I mean, you get bud mold, and you get that product on a shelf, and somebody ingests that, then they have some type of respiratory issue or some mold that could be very harmful to them. But, yeah, oh, man, there's so many pests. Man, there's thrips. There's white flies. There's spider mites. There's leaf hoppers. Uh, there's uh, caterpillars. You know, there's beetles, just leaf miners, fungus gnats, um, amelibugs, uh, slugs, snails, root maggots. I mean, there is a list. Uh, there's lots of different uh, really good ways to mitigate these, though, but it all comes down to labor. And if you look at tobacco, hemp is three times more labor-intensive, and it requires three times more space than tobacco when it comes to storing it, drying it. And when you harvest the bud, say you're going to grow for smokable bud. Yeah. So you go to harvest, you go out there to trim it. It takes four to six hours to trim it with hand shears, one plant, right? If you take and you do it with a bud trimmer, two hours. But still, you look at a thousand plants on one acre, four to six thousand acres. I mean, four to six thousand hours. Ooh, that's some time. Yeah, yeah, that's a ton of time. Like, and again, I, I'm back to what are, you, what are you growing for? If you're growing for flower, it almost seems impossible that it makes sense to grow outside. Yeah. If you're growing for, Abs if you're growing it and you're going to be making hempcrete and stuff like that, like for indu industrial biomass purposes, then I don't think it really matters from a standpoint of the product that you use to pesticide, right? Because nobody's eating it, ingesting it, whatever. But if you're growing for medicinal purposes, which seems like where the most money is right now, yeah, indoors seems like mm -hmm. the only way. Do you see an overlap then 
of aquaponics and and hemp, or is it a product that really grows better with um, just you know a soil medium or a hydroponic approach? Because um, you mentioned mold, and like you know that is a thing. That's something we learned a lot about. When we had uh, the gal from Hemp Magic on that how much testing they do to make sure that doesn't happen. So once we're going to say okay, we're going to do this hemp farming indoors. What do you think the best way to do that is? Oh, that's a good question. I think aquaponics is the best way because of how you can uh, can regulate the metabolic rate. I love deep water culture because you have that huge water volume, and you know you, the water temperature doesn't change. If you have a power failure, you've got a little bit longer than if you did have a hydroponic system. Redundancy isn't so much of a uh, a need, but it still is a need and something that needs to be implemented as far as uh, just to try to make sure that you, you mitigate any risk that, you know, could be um, possible. But I think that everything is going indoors. And I think aquaponics is going to be big, and I think it's going to be definitely something that's implemented as that's going to be before hydroponics or, or any other method would be implemented. And if you look at Green Relief, it's a aquaponic uh, commercial producer of hemp, and they're out of Canada. They've got some YouTube videos, and they're a really good example of uh, somebody that's producing high-quality uh, hemp. I think it's definitely going to be the way to go, uh, and it's because of what I've already been able to see with the research that we've been able to do in our facilities, uh, the way that it grows, how fast it grows, the way that it takes the pH of the water and just pulls it down, and if you don't have potassium biocarbonate and, and calcium biocarbonate, then you're, you're in big trouble. But it's such a good system. Um, aquaponics is for hemp, guaranteed. I would have been able to say that three or four months ago. Okay. But I, I think everything is going to go to aquaponics. And, and another reason I'll say that is because if you look at Alabama, if you look at Florida, and those are just the two I know of, all these hatcheries that are coming up, so what, can, what also can we do? What value can we add by having aquaponics? Well, they've got flounder um, um, hatcheries because of the flounder population. I mean, if we were to look at environmental crisis in the next 20 to 40 years, we have a, a question oh, as to whether on. or not how, we're how, do we, able to... how do we do flounder, which to my understanding is a, is a saltwater fish in an aquaponics? That's system. saltwater now. I was just, but okay. I was giving right. an example right. of right. fish and how we can, okay. I we can have, basically have yeah, more, more. Okay. Sorry about that. You know, I was yeah. like, well, wait, wait, either there's a freshwater flounder, or there's hemp that grows in salt water, and I want to. Okay, so I get you. Like the concept that we do need to reestablish populations instead of just yes, growing right. fish, we could actually be running aquaponics to to provide for hatcheries, and then yes, that actually right. makes a lot more sense because you don't make much money from fish in a commercial aquaponics system. But you could yes, right. if they were breeding stock. That's a different animal yes, that's altogether. Right. Yeah. That's, mm -hmm. that's an interesting thought so, there. Yeah. So I just look at all these irreplaceable resources that we use. And, you know, there's just another – it's just another way that one thing feeds the other and one thing feeds the other. And it's a complete biological symbiotic ecosystem. So I just – man, any – I think it's a great solution for a lot of the problems we have in our country. So, what? Well, how then is hemp generally grown in an aquaponic system? Is it done with like uh, ebb and flow type media beds? Is it done? I mean, I don't know. I've never it, it, it's, flood and drain. Like, That's right. Flood ebb and, and drain. Flow. Okay, it's not. 
It's not a raft crop. It just didn't seem to make any sense for that whatsoever. So it's an ebb and flow. Oh, no, it's in a raft. Okay. Yeah, it's in a raft. So it's actually deep water? Yeah, a root system. Yeah, it's deep water culture. For, for, for hemp? Wow. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> yes, man. I've got plants that are three or four foot tall, and you know that uh, hemp can actually – um, it will start to flower at 12 to you know 18 inches. So you can flower it. You won't create as much bud, but you still flower. In my aquaponic system, we're, we're producing about a half pound per square foot. Huh. How hard is it to get licensure for this crop? And I know that may vary by state or whatever, but um, you're not farming you know, 10,000 acres or something like that. You're not a huge commercial-scale farmer, so is this something almost anybody can do? What are the restrictions on it? Okay, great question. So, yeah, you're right. The laws vary state by state, but Tennessee has some of the lacks because, well, there's not a lot of regulation right now, and that's the reason. The license application is very easy process. You, you go online, and it's actually changed since I actually did my application, which was almost uh, last year uh, sometime, but it's $350 at the most that you have to pay to be a, a licensed grower here in the state of Tennessee. Uh, the processor license is free. Um, so anybody can have a, a processor's license. You, you basically fill out this five-sheet um, application, and you have to list and disclose GPS coordinates using Google Maps, and you basically put your information, your contacts, and you just send it back through email. You'll, you'll hear back within a week, and you'll have your, your application go through. Anybody can do it, um, but you're going to have inspectors, plant inspectors. They're going to call you, and they're going to ask you uh, around ten different questions from where you grew uh, to where you're processing to if you're marketing and who you're selling to, and you're going to have inspections um, for your crops before you harvest 30 days to tell whether or not you, you've got any issues. Plus, you're going to have to have lab tests to get COAs, Certificate of Analysis, mm -hmm. uh, which are going to be able to tell you if you had solvents, pesticides, and any of those good things. They also have and to make sure but, that you are not exceeding the small amount of THC allowed as well. Right. That's right. Yes, yeah. that's right. THC. Mm -hmm. I wonder does that ever yeah. does that ever happen? Like people have a known clone or something of a hemp variety that's supposed to be a low THC, and then when tested, it exceeds the like point zero three or whatever it is. That that bogey does does a plant that's not expected to ever trip the limit, and then if that happens, do they bust the guy that grew it who didn't do it? In, I mean, how does that work? Or does it just not an issue with the right? varieties so yeah there are uh strains that are um known for going hot and then strains that aren't and then it depends on heat you know decarboxylation um but as far as the testing um you're definitely tested for the thc and um if there were three people out of 300 um that year before this been this 3000 it's 2018 uh, there were three people out of 300 that had to turn over or destroy their crop. So it's not such a, uh, a huge pervasive issue. There's lots of strains that have, that have been tested, and those seeds are sold, feminized seeds, and they are known to have uh, phenotypes that produce high CBD, low THC. But there were only three out of 300, so that's a good ratio. And uh, But, yeah, you have to turn over the crop. So you have to destroy it if you do mm, if you're hot. That sucks. At least they at least they're not you know doing people up for it and calling it a felony or something. At least you know. All right. Oh uh, yeah. Um, so let's tie this back into something that's a little bit 
doesn't sound directly related, but it's in your uh, outline for me. So I imagine that in all of this, you might see a solution for this problem. A lot of our youth today are struggling to enter the workforce, um, whether it be people that get college degrees that aren't really very beneficial or they get college degrees that you really need experience before your degree matters or they're straight you know, from tech or high school, there is kind of a gap where right now we have more jobs than applicants, but all the jobs are either really meaning, meaning, uh, uh, you know, menial-level jobs, stocking shelves or something, or they require experience that young people don't have. Do you see any possibility that farming, agriculture, aquaponics, hemp, etc., may be able to aid with that issue? Absolutely. I think it definitely will. I think that there is a good work ethic tied to each one of those um, as far as aquaponics and farming and agriculture. And I think that there is a skewed perception. We, I think that the youth believe or maybe they're told that college is going to be the, the providing channels they need to be able to hit the workforce at a high level of authority or some sort of um, – you know, uh, a level to where they have uh, put in the hours when it's it's really they just learned about something. And, and you know, I think that college, man, I, I've got a buddy who's an electrical engineer, and he, he graduated and hasn't had a job since, and it's been like five years. I love him to death, man, and he's really smart, but that college didn't do anything for him. Hmm. And, you know, maybe it, it maybe that doesn't, you know, maybe that's not a good example, but you know, there are several different stories like this, and I, I meet people every day with doing service that I hear this a lot. I think agriculture is a great way to not only provide, you know, a good job for somebody. Uh, people just don't – I guess it's because of corporations, though, man. That's why we don't see a lot of small businesses. That's why we don't see a lot of smaller farmers because we have all these land grabs and all these corporations that are setting up, whether foreign or domestic. This is happening a lot in the United States. And people, we, we have this system that's built to where you're going to work for somebody. It's going to be like school. You're going to go and show up, and, and you're going to put your hours in, and, and it needs to be more hands-on. We need to have more. Um, but, I mean, I could go on with that. There's a lot of different aspects I could talk about. But, yeah, agriculture, I think that's one of those things that if it doesn't come back and we don't have a lot more um, farmers, then um, it's going to be bad for not only the environment, but society and, and, and our youth needs some type of outlet that's more hands-on. I believe that for sure. Yeah, I, I think that you know when I look at agriculture as a whole, it is one of the industries out there that has such a universal marketplace. Like, everybody eats. So whatever you're producing, <laughs> everybody's a potential customer. Not everybody is a customer because to make it really obvious, if you produce chicken and then vegans are not your customers, right? Uh, so, and if you produce a little <laughs> premium, high-end organic product that sells for three times what an equivalent product at the supermarket sells for, then poor people are not your customer. But everybody's potentially a customer. And then you mm -hmm. have a environment where it is one of the, the easiest on-ramps to entrepreneurship that there is. I'm not saying it's easy to do. I'm saying it's easy to get into. Like, it is something everybody can do in some way. We have people that are farming that own no land. And, no, they're not leasing 80 acres like Joel Salatin running pigs. They're, 
you know, running four or five market gardens in backyards in neighborhoods, driving around on bicycles. Not the way I want to do it. Promise you it won't be me. But <laughs> if you can do that, we have people that, you know, they're basically farmers, but they grow microgreens in their house. We have people like you that are doing the greenhouse, passive solar, aquaponics. Things like There's a million ways to skin that cat. And I think one of the things I hear young people say that I – I appreciate, but I also think it's naivety, is that, but what I'm doing, even if I make good money, I don't have purpose, right? It's like, well, kiddo, you know, maybe you need to spend some time getting really good at what you do, and then you'll find purpose. But I also understand where they're coming from. And what is a greater purpose than feeding or providing medicine to people and controlling the way in which you do it Because the one thing Absolutely. I love about agriculture is you think about it like no matter what your politics of environmentalism are, right? I don't care if you let's say you don't give a damn, you're a conventional person, you don't think that, you know, pesticide and herbicide is a problem. Okay, there's a place for you. If you are the, the person that's like a complete navel gazer, totally the other way, there's a place for you. And everything in between those two extremes There's a place. So the person can take a lot of that ideology that in a lot of places, you know, you got to kind of put it in your back pocket and can actually stay true to their ideology no matter where it is on the spectrum. And they still have something they can do if they'll get off their ass and do it anyway to make a viable business, if that makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. Yeah, this is. This is a way, I mean, it's an obvious market that is open for demand. It is so open for demand. There are so many distributors that I've visited uh, before I realized, man, I could go anywhere. I can go anywhere, and these guys cannot get enough. And one thing that makes it all the much better and more lucrative for anybody wanting to start a business You have a value-added product when you pair one of these growing processes with that product that's already out there that's not uh, grown this way. You've you got it. You've got value-added. I've selling. I've sold lettuce, a salad mix for a dollar an ounce. A dollar an ounce. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, so that's sixteen dollars a pound for those that are doing the new math, and it takes you ninety-seven steps to get there, right? So sixteen dollars a pound. So <laughs> I, I want people to really think about that, right? Like the best beef, you know, without going to like Kobe or something like that. The kind of the best cuts of beef at your supermarket sell for less than sixteen dollars a pound. So you can make more money per pound with lettuce than you can with beef. Mm. Now I also think you're going to work a little mm -hmm. harder. Cows kind of. Yeah, here's some water and some grass, and the cow does its cow thing, right? It's not that easy, but there is a lot of not doing anything when it comes to cows. You know when you're doing a high-production, high-turnover leaf crop, there's a lot of work. You're doing cannabis. You were talking about I – I kind of – my eyes glassed over for a second. I didn't get exactly how long I'd have to prune a plant, but it was like four hours or something to prune mm -hmm. one plant. Like there's a lot more work in it, but what's the return? When you're selling lettuce for 16 bucks a pound – You can make a living in a thousand square feet, and I think anybody can Absolutely. come up with. Especially I think, if you vertically integrate. Yeah, yeah, because like I think one of the things like that I'm getting from you, and maybe we need to bring that to the front for people is, you're not necessarily saying, "Hey, grow cannabis or grow lettuce." It might grow both, right? And then if we can integrate that into like you were saying, aquaponics, and maybe tie that into some sort of production beyond here's a fish to eat. 
right? We can turn that into some sort of a breeding operation. Now you really start to, I mean, really start to build. And then whenever you expand one, the rest kind of expands and scales with it. That's what I love about aquaponics. Like, okay, well, I want another fish tank. Okay, well, then you need another 30 grow beds, right? Or you need X amount of deep water space. And everything's modular. And, and basically, you can expand as much space as you have available. And you don't need that much more energy if you're doing things like you said with passive solar and even pumps. We only need to be so big with our pumps uh, because as long as we're pushing water up, it can do all the work on its way back. Exactly. Yeah, there are many different things like ornamental flowers, uh, bamboo, hmm. uh, ground covers huh. that are sold in, in high volume and high value uh, and that are grown aquaponically that can be, be a, a, a very good lucrative business. You know, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's, a great, that's a great point, like seeing yourself more as a nursery, right? Because, like, mm -hmm. if, if I decided right now that I just didn't want to do aquaponics anymore, for whatever reason it was, I would still have at least one system. And I would have one system mm -hmm. with one big-ass grow bed full of leka. For those that don't know that term, it's like clay pebbles, right? And it, if for nothing oh, else... light expanded. Yeah, the little, you know what I mean, the, the really expensive stuff, but it's the best. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would have at least one bed of that just for making clones and plant propagation. Because if you think about how fast something roots in an ebb and flow bed versus how fast it roots any other way, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Now, there, I think there are some things that like intermittent mist and stuff works better for. Though you could do that, too. Mm -hmm. um, but the stuff that will root in ebb and flow, it's stupid. It's like you stick it in there, and three days later, there's like this massive root system on it. So if you found a group of, let's say, 12 to 18 plants that you could market as even ornamentals that cloned well in ebb and flow, that's a whole business unit that can be run out of a couple 50-gallon tubs. And that's, that's thinking differently. That's another level of that you know, vertical integration you're talking about. Really cool, man. Mm -hmm. So I got a question for you. And Thanks, man. I got a question for you. Um, you wrote a song... Based on a Maroon 5 song. I was listening to it. I didn't see that it was based on a Maroon 5. I'm like, what style of music is this, man? This is like kind of like sultry, soulish pop. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're rap, white boy rapping in it. And all that. And I said, Maroon 5. Oh, Adam Levine. Oh, okay, that's what that is. And the song is called Let Us Like This, right? Now, look, I'm going to put you down. It's actually really yeah. well done, right? But I don't expect to hear it on, you know, 97.1. Uh, in my car tomorrow, right? So I don't think you're trying to fill the airways of conventional music with this. What made you write a song called Let Us Like This? Oh, man, that's a good question, man. That's a good question. See, I, I was doing Facebook Lives. Every night when I when I would get off from work, uh, my 9 to 5 with fuller heating and cooling, um, I would be harvesting lettuce, and I had Facebook Live, and, and everybody would watch. And it was really good because the people that were eating my lettuce in my local community, they were able to see me. And, you know, it was really awesome because I was building this little community and being able to talk to the people that were my customers. And sometimes your customers can be your most supportive people in your life. Um, sometimes they can be the worst uh, thing in your life. But um, regardless, <laughs> man, I just wanted to provide something funny. I wanted to continue doing something that I love because I do love playing music. And um, it's just like another aspect of an industry where you need to have something that's fresh and original and you know this the things that we um 
suscept ourselves to with from the inter- entertainment industry and the music uh, industry. It, it's just it's it's just so just it, they glorify the wrong things and they're just it, it's just really bad for the mind. So I wanted something that would be funny and just that people could enjoy. So I just basically I made a video and put all the photos from the last year of harvesting my lettuce and the, and the hemp. And then uh, basically put the song in there. So yeah, it was it was really easy. Actually, it was about an hour. I was just listening to the song uh, "Girls Like You" because it came on YouTube, and I was sitting doing some little bit of research. And then my mind said, "Lettuce like this leaves the shelves real quick." And I was like, "What? No, no, wait a second. So I stopped everything I was doing. The next hour or two hours of my time, I just took to write out that song, wrote it out, called my producer from Franklin. Because I produced an album in 2014, one of my songs was a was a real good hit. It was called "Not Gonna Take My Land Away." I wrote it about, you know, government land grabs and, and our taxes and stuff, and that was nice. And uh, man, I just I really had fun with it. It's really fun doing that. So I, I look forward to doing it again. Well, let's do this. So we'll we'll pause here a bit. I'm not gonna play the whole thing here, but I'll play I don't know about 30 seconds of this song for people to get a feel for it on the air. And then we'll come back, and uh, if they want to hear the whole thing, you know, uh, they can they can get over to the show notes today, and there's a link uh, right in the write-up uh, over to hear the whole song. So here we go. Spent 24 hours nurturing my lettuce, flowers for you. On the weekend, dropping seeds in, ooh. So you're not blue without my lettuce, you start feening. After one salad mix, you got your lettuce fixed, no more dreaming. Lettuce like this leaves the shelves real quick. My lettuce grows fast. I keep it stocked in the back. People like you like lettuce. Me too. When I come through, I have lettuce for you. Yeah, yeah. You need a bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the lettuce for you. Yeah, yeah. All right, man. So I don't know if I've ever stopped in the middle of an episode before and played music from a guest. That might be a first in over 2,000 episodes, man, but that, that's really cool. I, I, I was like, when I saw that you had that in the notes, I'm like, oh, this is going to – I hate to say this, but I was like, this is going to suck, <laughs> right? And then I went – I'm like, no, it's, it's not my style of music overall, but, like, this is actually really well done. So I was impressed, that's man. That's, awesome. why I, that's why I played it on the air. Um Let's let's talk oh, a little man. bit about – I know something you're big with is your goals, right? You talked about live streams on Facebook. I know those are archived, but I, I didn't get a chance to look at any of them. But I, I imagine, like, goals and drive must be a big thing with you. I know you uh, you mentioned John Willis from SOE earlier. I mean, you talk about a guy with drive and a guy that tells people to pay attention to him to drive. I don't know if you saw, he did a video last week, and it was something titled something like, This is why you eat crayons while I make millions. And it was just yeah, epic. Yeah. So, so I'm betting... <laughs> That you have a lot of goals and you have a lot of drive, and you probably discussed that in some of the social media you're doing. So, can you tell us, you know, what are your goals and what drives you to do all this? So, what drives me to do all this? Oh man, that's a big question. I've got a lot of different things that really drive me. Um, I'm very, very um, hypercritical, and I, I think 
in deep thought about this life and what we're doing right now. And I constantly reevaluate myself and purpose. And I think there's nothing better than to turn over the soil, right? So that's what drove me to do aquaponics. I feel like that we are directly connected to the, the, the growing nature in our world, the animals, this planet. We're just everything is here for a purpose. And as far as my drive, I believe that people need each other. And I believe that, you know, we, we're, you're hanging in the balance from, 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 somebody saying something to you or not like your life is hanging in the balance because of our minds and the way that we're we we think Um, what drives me is people people inspire me you know people really drive me to another level and just food and I really what really drives me if you really want to know it's it's being unsatisfied it's just like business when I first got into my dad's company and I started realizing how Machines were made for heating and air. Let's take that for an example. They're made for obsolescence. They're made to break down. Okay. They have that certain year mark and then they're done. That to me, I hated that. Mm. And I, it drove me the way entertainment is and how they shove stuff down our throats and make us look at ourselves and try to make us compare ourselves to what we see. They, they take and they sink in the avenues of our soul from what we touch, what we feel, hear, see, and it's all a lie. And I just that unsatisfied me. It's just like that song. I want to throw that in there so that not, somebody's watching that song getting a laugh rather than seeing somebody up there shaking their butt or saying they got a big house and that's what they need to live for. So uh, I'm unsatisfied. I'm unsatisfied with the food industry. I hate the fact that my wife goes to Nashville once a week, and I like um, – uh, what is it? World? No, uh, Whole Foods. I like that. But when I go to Trader Joe's and I go to buy some vegetables and the jalapenos last for a month longer than they're supposed to, and then they say Mexico on them, but they came from California. So they came from Mexico to California to Trader Joe's in Nashville. And that's all the options that I get. No, I'm good. You know what I'm saying? I, I want people to experience what life is supposed to be like. And I know for a fact that the, soci- the society that we've created as man is not what it was intended to be. I know that there's more to this earth and to life in general than there is right now. And I feel like that if I sit and, and I work a nine to five job every day, and there's nothing wrong with that because you have an effect. You have an opportunity wherever you're at in whatever position you are. You have that opportunity to, to affect somebody in a good way and you have a purpose, okay? But I feel like if I sit at a nine to five job and do the same thing, that I'm not going to live up to my true potential because I know that I've put my mind to some things and been able to create opportunity. And I know that the opportunities are limitless now. And I know that I can create more. So that's what drives me, the fact that I know what we're capable of, Jack. I know that our minds, when given the right, proper things, we can, can do anything, really, man. So that the possibilities drive me. The opportunities drive me. Awesome, man. I think that like the fact that you're unsatisfied is the truth about most people. Most people are unsatisfied. But then there's two things that you can do. You can bitch or you can do something, right? I mean, that's really the two places. That's right, right? That's right. I, I would say, I, I, I'm not going to say most people are unsatisfied. I think a whole shitload of people have been lulled into, you know, some level of drug-induced satisfied. And that drug could be what we think of as a drug, or it can be TV, or it can be fast food, or it can be, 
you know, reality mm -hmm. TV. It's whatever their drug or drugs of choice are. So there's that group of people. Then there's a, a pretty big sort group of people left that are like, no, this is not good enough. And they generally bifurcate from there into one of two camps. Uh, I'm going to bitch and vote harder, right? And tell everybody that votes the way mm -hmm. I don't that they're wrong. Or I'm going to go do some shit. And I think it's the people that mm -hmm. do things that end up actually healing because the dissatisfaction to me is actually like an illness, right? And it's what you said. It's mm -hmm. where you are so disconnected from who and what we are supposed to be. Uh, I recently discovered um, – well, I didn't discover Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan I've known about forever. I remember the Fear Factor days and stuff like that. But uh, his podcast, I discovered these two guys that have this reoccurring role, Randall Carson and um, Greg Han – Grant – Whatever his name, Graham Hancock, right? Okay, these two guys, and they are just turning the world upside down on what we don't know about our ancestors, what we don't know about ancient civilizations, the technology these people had 10,000, 15,000 years ago. And you look at that and go, well, that's like that's a history book. That's just things that happened. But when you actually start to understand who we are as a species and where we come from, you start to realize how effing disconnected from our world we have become. And I think one of the reasons that so many people that decide to do something turn to some form of agriculture is it is who we are. It, what we're learning is even our concept of the hunter-gatherer that you know we think of as being the, the tribal little group that wandered through. The, like everybody in human history since it was really a thing and people didn't just fall over and die from starvation every other day, did something agricultural. Maybe it wasn't giant fields. But, like, they, I don't know if you know this. They figured out that basically the entire Amazon basin is a garden. The whole thing's man-made. Like, they, they go in and they find that there's this ridiculous uh, number of trees per, you know, per hectare, per, uh, uh, per the total of things like ice cream bean and stuff like that that or Brazil nuts, or what have you. There's way too many of them for there just to have been a natural occurrence, that man must have been cultivating these trees in the Amazon for thousands of years, that one of those Portuguese or Spanish guys or whatever went down the Amazon in like the 1500s or some crap, said there were people everywhere, and then when they came back like 10 years later, it was nobody. And they thought he was nuts or he lied. And what they figured out now is that like, well, yeah, they brought freaking uh, smallpox down the Amazon with them, And wiped all these people out. But these people were living in the Amazon, gardening the entire Amazon. And when you when you realize stuff like that, you start to realize, like, that is what we're supposed to be doing. Now, I don't mean everybody needs to run off and start, you know, Joe Blow's farm. But there's something intrinsically human about the cultivation of plants. And that's why I prefer the term horticulture. I don't think of myself as an agriculturist. Um, agriculture actually means the culture of fields. That's what agriculture means. Horticulture is the culturing of plants. And I think humans are horticultural people. Like, Sorry to go off on a rant there, but like, your rant made me just think of all this. Oh, man. I mean, billions of fish worldwide are killed for food every single day. Unless current fishing rates are drastically reduced, scientists predict that every species of wild-caught seafood will be collapsed by the year 2050. You know, according to the rainforest facts, more than an acre and a half of tropical rainforest is being cleared every second of every day. And rainforest covered 14% of the Earth's land surface. Now they cover a mere 6%. So, I mean, they're estimating that the rainforest could be consumed in less than 40 years. So what you're saying is 
accurate and what you're saying needs to be said. So keep on keeping on, my brother. I love it. <laughs> Man, um, so I, I, you kind of mentioned this, but I, I was curious as to exactly how you found out about the Survival Podcast and, and, and us. I guess there was a connection with John Willison there. Yeah. Yeah, he, he actually, you know what? He, um, I think, because he acts really, really quickly. Like, he... I mean, he's quick to do things. Like, he's like my father, man. They just say, man, they get stuff done. They're doers. Um, but ja John actually, he, he said it to me. And before I left that day, I, it was probably a month ago, he sent me the link to your application. And oh, really? immediately I sat down. Yep, yep. And I, I filled it out, sent it in, and then Dorothy got right back with me. Well, very, I'm glad he had you, so. had you do that. I, now that you say that, I think somewhere in my head of a billion burned brain cells over the last couple of months – There was a, a message on Facebook Messenger or something from him about this. And that's what it was now because, like you, I'm a pretty busy guy and wow. I don't remember a lot of stuff. But now I think, yeah, I think he did reach out to me and say something about what you were doing with hemp and aquaponics and stuff. And I was like, yeah, man, get him, get him on. So I'm glad he made that connection. John's a good dude. For people that are listening to this podcast, John has a podcast with his buddy Scully. It's called Pulling a Thread. It's definitely worth checking out as well. And... I, you know, we talk a little bit about today's youth and all, and I think what, like, some of the stuff I'm doing here and some of the stuff John's doing and, and other people, like, you know, seem totally unrelated, like Jordan Peterson. What these podcasters are becoming is kind of like the strong role model, male role model that seems to be missing for a lot of young people in the world today. Like, men that say things the way they see them. Even if you don't agree with them, you got to be like, okay, I know where this dude stands and, and are unafraid to stand for what what they really believe, and then also tie into it, well, like, here's what you can go do. Because I think that was like a key thing you and I have talked about today is, like, you can be as pissed as you want, you can be as disappointed, unless you go do something. All you've done is basically made the problem worse by exposing it and agitating it. It's like, if you have a wound, and you know that's a wound, and you pull the bandage off it, you stick your finger in it a bunch of times and scratch it, then all you did was make the problem worse. And I think that's what a lot of people do with their dissatisfaction. Where, like, okay, with that wound, it needs a poultice, it needs a good bandage, it needs to be taken care of so it can heal. And, like, I think doing is what's healing a lot of, of the damage that's been done by society to people today, man. So I'm glad you've chosen mm -hmm. that path, and I think the one you've taken is a really interesting one. And, man, if you ever, like, have some new stuff you want to talk about, come back on the air, you know where the form is, dude. Fill it out. We'll bring you back, man. Hey, I'm, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I feel like that you are definitely somebody that you can stick me in a box with you for, for a couple hours, and I'd be in, we'd be in great shape. So, yeah, I mean, I'd love to come back on, and I'll definitely keep you posted on my progress. All right, man. Well, again, thanks for being with us today, and I wish you well, Ted. All right, Jack. See ya. All right, great interview with a good guy doing good things. I do have links where you can find Tad on Facebook and YouTube in the show notes today. Of course, today's episode number is 2477. Real quick, I want to remind you guys that episode 2500 is coming up, and I'd like you to be part of it. You can do that by calling the jerk line. Uh, the number to call the jerk line is... 
call on into the jerk line. Tell me why I'm a jerk. Tell, tell me how TSP has made your life just a little bit better or how you've gotten through uh, an emergency or a catastrophe that wasn't a catastrophe, it's just an inconvenience. The things you've done, whatever it is that's cool that you say, at least you know TSP and our communities and subcommunities have had some impact on. Again, the number 877-644-1345. We are now only 23 episodes away from episode 2500. It's going to be one for the history books. You want to be part of it. Next up, remember the simple, painless, easy way that you guys can help support this show. You probably buy stuff all the time. If you're going to buy stuff online, consider going to tspaz.com before you buy something. Most specifically, if you're going to buy it on Amazon. If you start your shopping there, you'll help support us no matter what you buy. You'll find all of the items that I have reviewed over the years. Items that I spend my own money on, that I would buy and I would buy again. Today is an item that I said yesterday in the show. I really should review this item for you guys, and I finally did it. You guys know me. I love to cook. I love to cook. I love to cook. I love to cook. And probably my favorite you know, style of cooking is Asian foods. Um, the balancing of the flavors, the hot and fast action of a wok, the, the sticky kind of sweet, hot things that can be done with like chicken and all. I mean, I love it all. There's a key ingredient in that, and it's called fish sauce. Yesterday I talked about using fish sauce to make an Italian food called bruschetta. And, uh, you know, Romans actually were the first people that ever, that we can figure out from what we know about history, made a fish sauce, right? It was, it was like the, the ketchup of the day. Um, but it is the Asians, specifically the Vietnamese and Taiwanese, in my opinion, that have really, like, made an art out of making sauce out of little anchovies and salt. That's the only thing that goes in them. The problem is, in the United States, most of the brands of fish sauce you get are just not very good. And I found Red Boat a couple years ago, and I had no idea the, the story behind it until I researched it as to why it's so damn good. Um, there's a guy, and I'm probably going to say his name wrong, Kuang Pham. He was an Apple engineer, and uh, he ended up here in the United States working for Apple, obviously, and... He had a real desire to recreate the food that he grew up with in Vietnam. And even in San Francisco, where, you know, it's like ground zero for amazing uh, food, uh, Asian food specifically, with the huge uh, Asian influence in the area, he couldn't find really good fish sauce. So in 2006, he went back to Vietnam and he developed uh, Red Boat and started bringing it into the United States. And to this day, it's made in Vietnam and then bottled in the U.S. So it, it you know, provides American jobs, and yet you get the real quality of uh, Vietnamese fish sauce. There's a couple things about this. Number one is they use only these little black anchovies. There's only one kind of fish that goes in this stuff. Uh, number two is that it's done by traditional methods. And number three is it's all from what you call the first press. So think of it like olive oil. you got extra virgin olive oil. That's that first gentle press of really premium olives. And then a second press and anything else is just olive oil. It's kind of like that. What do they do with their extras, their leftovers? I don't know. I have a suspicion. Though. So today, if you want to check this stuff out, go to tspaz.com. You can see the most current review link there. Click that. You'll see all the reviews in order. And you can pull up this review. And you'll see in, in the uh, reviews, I usually link to a specific product, like you know, a, a two-pack of fish sauce or something. I actually linked to the Red Boat vendor page on Amazon for a, a variety of reasons. One is, there, you, know, you can get three, you can get one, you can get a gallon of it, whatever you want. And so you pick out your size, right? Because it's all, it's all the same sauce. But there's 
something else I found out. They have some other stuff. They have this uh, family 50N. This is 40 degree north is the, the brand uh, or the variety that is their main fish sauce. They have a 50 degree family, and they spell it with a PH, right, um, that's smoked. I got to try that. I just ordered it. Haven't tried it yet, but it looks amazing. They also have salt that's infused with the anchovy flavor, the umami flavor that you get from a fish sauce. And um, I'm wondering if maybe that's what they figured out. Like, if we're only going to do the first press, we get to do some of the rest of this, and they made a salt out of it. So that it can be applied in a, you know, a dry, salty form, too. So I'm going to try that. And I sent some cool-looking black peppercorns. Well, I don't know. I mean, they're peppercorns from Vietnam. We'll give them a try, too. Uh, so you, if you go into the article today... You can find out all the information about this stuff, some of the stuff that I do with it. You can find a huge list of recipes using it on the Red Boat website. And this stuff belongs in your life. I'll also say this about stuff like fish sauce. This is stuff you can stock up on. As a prepper with a deep pantry, I don't care what the expiration date or best use by date is. It's fermented salted fish sauce. It has an expiration date on it because the government makes them put it on there. It's not quite as bad, but it's almost like putting an expiration date on a bottle of whiskey. It's just not going to go bad, especially sealed and stored in a cool, dry place. Give this stuff a try and up your Asian cooking. And if you've ever tried fish sauce before cooked into things, I mean, no one, I think, really wants to sit down and drink a glass of this stuff. But if you've tried fish sauces before and kind of been let down by them, give this stuff a try. It will not let you down. And you really can't make some of the best Asian dishes without it. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. We are in the middle of Number Song Week. These are all songs... With numbers on the title today, we have 5150 from Van Halen. Um, I remember when this this song came out, because I think this was the first album where Sammy Hagar took the lead of Van Halen, and David Lee Roth left and went and did things on his own. I think it was like 1984 was when Roth left um, and went out and did songs like Jump, etc., Uh, and then Sammy came into Van Halen, and this was one of the first big songs that they had with Sammy at the lead vocals. So what's 5150 all about? Um, 5150 is police code for we got like basically an escaped psychiatric patient. But the song's all about a guy trying to please a woman, and it makes him nuts. That's what this song's about. <laughs> at one point he says, I feel like a politician running for office trying to please you. Talk about crazy, like having to be a politician to please a woman. That's gonna so well the whole point of this song is guys and I know some of you good ladies listening and you might be mad at me I didn't write the song that some women can make men just crazy that's the point of this song I know we can make you crazy too I do a pretty good job making my wife crazy on occasion but great song great vocals amazing guitar which is what you would always expect from Van Halen by the way 5150 is the name of Eddie Van Halen's studio. With that's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the uh, Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.